What is real and what is fake? That's the question for today. What's real and what's fake? You see, sometimes it can be hard to know the difference between the two. It can be hard to tell what's real and what's fake, especially in today's age. I don't know if you've ever had the experience like me where you, you come upon a picture on the internet and you have to do a double take for a second. You think, is that really real? Is that a real photo? I actually grabbed a few of them for you this morning that I want to show you and, and maybe we can digest together. Is, is that a real photo or is that fake? And so I, if you take a look at this first photo, I just wonder, when, when you look at this, do you think, is that real or is that fake? It, it's actually real. It's, it's a building in San Francisco with a bunch of fog over it that makes it look like a floating ship, but it's a real photo. How, how about this one? Is, is, this, is this next one, is it real or is it fake? You can, this tree, it's actually real. They rearranged the leaves on the tree uh, on the ground to, to make them look like it's glowing. It's a real photo just with rearranged leaves under it. How, how about this next one? Is this person cooking? Is that real or is that fake? That is fake. I don't know how they managed to doctor up this photo, but that is not a real image of the person flipping their food. How, how about this next one? Would you imagine, is this cat? Is this a real cat or is, is that a fake? I'm here to tell you that's a fake cat. His eyebrows do not look like that. They were doctored on the internet. How, how about this next one? Is, is this one real or is it fake? That one's fake. The pilot is not taking a, a selfie photograph in the middle of flying a plane. He did do it on the runway on the ground and then they photoshopped him flying through the air. And then what about this one? Is that real or is it fake? That one's a fake photo. That house, that castle is real and the rock is real, but the castle does not exist on the rock. The internet tricked us into making it look like it does. And then finally, is this photo real or is it fake? That's actually a real photo of a lion going through an MRI and I hope they got fixed whatever medical ailment that this poor lion was wrestling with. You know, it, no matter where we find ourselves, we, we, we have a trouble sometimes understanding, is, is this picture or is this thing in life, is it real or is it fake? So many things look real, but we have to really wade through and figure out, is that actually real? You see, I think in our current time today, with the emergence of things like Photoshop and ChatGPT and other capacities of our technological world, it makes us have to ask this question even more than they normally would. It makes us have to take a second look at so many things and say, gosh, is that really real? But you know, the question of what is real, it's, it's not a new question. People have been asking the question, what is real, for thousands of years. And frankly, the people of Galatia, the Christians in the area of Galatia in the first century, they were asking that exact question. They were asking that question in regard to real faith. They wanted to know, what does real faith look like? You see, because in that time and in that context, so many people were, were teaching about the different ways that real faith might look. 
And you might not be surprised to know that, that they all differed in what they were saying from one another. And so the Galatians, the Christians in the Galatians, the believers in that area, they found themselves with their heads spinning, wondering, what, what actually constitutes a real faith? Which, which of these things am I supposed to believe about what it is to really know and understand the true, real message of the gospel of God and, and to live my life accordingly? And so the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, has that particular mission in mind. He, he wants to share with them, if nothing else, what the real faith looks like, what the real message of God is. He's interested in helping the Galatians understand what actually constitutes that. You see, when Paul does this, especially in Galatians chapter 2, a ver, uh, chapter that we're going to humble ourselves before this morning and, and hope to seek out what it has to say to us. When Paul does this in Galatians 2, when he seeks to share with the Galatians what it means to have real faith, he tells them two particular stories. He tell, actually tells them stories about his previous experience in ministry. So he's not talking to them directly in Galatians 2. He's telling them stories about what has happened to him previously in his life of ministry. And he begins the first story in Galatians chapter 2 verse 1. When he says, then 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again. Have you ever spent some time in your life desperately trying to prove something to someone? Whether it was a, a boss or a coworker or a coach or a spouse. Hey, have you ever spent some time being like, I... I need you to listen to me. I, I just want you to know that I am trying to prove myself to you. Will you open your eyes and listen to that reality of what I am trying to show you? And if you have, have you ever spent 14 years doing it consistently? Not me. I give up after about 14 days trying to prove myself to someone or something. But Paul's saying here, he starts this chapter, he says, I went back to, Galatia, or, or back to Jerusalem 14 years later. They say, I, I'm still interested in proving myself to you. And what does Paul have to prove? I mean, we read his letters, he's part of writing our, our holy scriptures. What could Paul possibly have to prove? Well, a lot, it turns out, in that day and age. You see, Paul had spent the beginning of his life actually persecuting Christians under the name of Saul. He was a bad guy in the world of believers of Jesus. And so Paul has to prove himself seemingly over and over again to the leaders of the church to tell them, in effect, I have experienced the risen Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is within me now. And the Holy Spirit has actually equipped and he powered me to go and proclaim the message of Jesus Christ to more people outside of the Jewish population. And he is constantly having to prove to people that he is actually real in his faith and his message about Jesus Christ. And so one of the ways that he attempts to prove this is he goes to Jerusalem 14 years later. And what he's doing is he's, he wants to meet with the leaders of the Jerusalem church, the Jewish Christian church at that time. And, and the specific reason for their meeting is around this idea and the, and the understanding of circumcision. And, and, and for, for our sense today, basically for, for what we can go through today, how we might define circumcision is that it, it, it's a custom, 
a customary way of being, a thing that someone did that made them a part of the in-group. That circumcision was something you did, a custom that you observed, that therefore now you're part of the in-group. People assume now all of a sudden you have a real faith if you have observed this custom. You are definitely part of the in-group of Jesus' followers and of the people of God. And so people made the assumption that circumcision was the customary way that your faith became real. Well, this was not the message that the Apostle Paul was preaching. In fact, the exact opposite. The Apostle Paul was preaching the message that you did not have to fall in line with that specific custom in order to have a real faith. That was not required, Paul says. And so what he does then in trying to prove himself is he goes and he meets with the leaders of the Jewish Christian church, the followers of Jesus who come from the Jewish tradition. And he basically says, hey, are, are we all on the same page here? Are we all talking about the same thing? Because it feels like there's some, some different streams of thought here. And what he tells us in this first part of Galatians 2 as he walks through the account of that story is that he says that they actually affirm him and say, yes, you are right. We are all on the same page. You do not have to follow the customary way of circumcision in order to be real in your faith. And they actually encourage him, keep going. Keep preaching what you're preaching, Paul. Why do you think Paul would tell the Galatians? Why do you think he'd spend the first half of chapter 2 of his letter to the Galatians telling them about how he went to Jerusalem for this meeting 14 years after the first time he was there. I think it's because Paul wanted to prove to them that he was real in what he was saying. He wanted to prove to them that his message was real. It was authentic, even so much so that it was backed by the Jerusalem leaders of the church. He's in essence saying to the Galatians as he's writing them, let me tell you a story about how even they have backed what I'm saying as being real. And so given that, I hope we've laid a foundation so that you can go ahead and listen up to the rest of what I have to tell you. And then he begins to say the rest of what he has to say in Galatians 2 by sharing this second story that he tells them about his experience in ministry. He tells them first about a story of what happened to them in Jerusalem, and then he says of a story that happens when he was in Antioch with some of the leaders of the church, some of actually Jesus's original disciples, Peter, James, and the like. He says it like this, starting in verse 11. Paul says, but when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers, the people who were not Jewish, who were not circumcised. They were not part of the in-group. But afterward, when some friends of James, when some friends of the in-group came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. And even Barnabas, one of Paul's closest friends and ministry partners, was led astray by their hypocrisy, Paul says. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, 
Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish tradition? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever been in a middle school lunchroom before? Some of you might actually live the reality. You might have been in a middle school lunchroom on like Friday. We have some kids and students and teachers in our midst. You see, what you would observe if you had the opportunity to be in a middle school lunchroom would be a story somewhat similar to what Paul is describing here in Galatians chapter 2. Here's what it might look like in the context of a middle school lunchroom. You see Jimmy, he sits down to eat and enjoy his meal, and then as he's doing that, Sam and some of his friends come and they sit with Jimmy. They take their lunch and they're eating with Jimmy as well, and all of them are having a wonderful time eating their lunch together, enjoying their food, and they just cannot wait for biology class later that day. But then Patrick walks in. And no offense to the Patricks in the room. This is just a random name that I pulled. But Patrick, he doesn't think that Sam and his friends should be sitting with Jimmy. See, Jimmy doesn't have all of these outward signs that make him cool enough or worthy enough of them sitting with him. And so Patrick gives Sam and his friends that head nod that says, I am cool and important and I need you to leave Jimmy's table right now because it is bad for our reputation as a friend group. And so one by one, Sam and all of his friends get up and they walk over to Patrick's table and they sit with him because they are worried about what Patrick might think of them, all the while leaving Jimmy at the table by himself. This is in effect what Paul describes happens to Peter here in this situation in Galatians chapter 2. He says, Peter was sitting with the Gentile believers, enjoying a meal, fellowshipping together. But then some of James's friends came about. And Peter knew that they were part of the in-group, and he technically was with people who hadn't called the customary ways of the in-group. And so Peter immediately ejected himself from the situation and went to sit with the friends of James instead. He said to the Gentile believers, he said, sorry, you're not, you haven't quite done the right things in order for me to be able to sit with you. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2 has about had it with this type of mentality from Christians. He has had it up to here with this way of thinking and being from people who follow Jesus Christ. And he, in effect, he says to Peter, are you serious, Peter? Really? You know these people love Jesus? You know they have the Holy Spirit of Pentecost inside of them, working and transforming them. You know they are genuine and real in their faith. And yet you walk up and leave to sit with someone else because they did not follow the customary ways that make them part of the in-group in the faith. Are you serious, Peter? Paul says. 
You see, in this text in Galatians 2, we begin to discover some of the specific passions that Paul has around what it means to have a real faith. And the first particular passion that we see that Paul has regarding a real faith is just this. Paul is passionate that a real faith has much more to do with inward transformation than it does with outward ritual. That a real faith has to do with how God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is working and shaping each and every one of us, Paul says in another letter, to become an entirely new creation. That is real faith, Paul says. And it has nothing to do with customary ways of being, nothing to do with outward rituals or ways of making ourselves look better on the outside, be part of the in-group. Paul shares actually one chapter earlier in Galatians verse one, or chapter one, verse 10. He says it this way. He says, obviously I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, if looking good on the outside to others were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. I do not like this verse because it it speaks directly to me. It is hard for me to not want to conjure up myself in a way that seeks the approval of other people instead of the approval of God, that wants to look good on the outside for the sake of other people accepting me or thinking I'm worthy instead of serving Christ himself. Theologian and pastor and longtime leader in the church, Tim Keller, recently passed away. And one of the ways that I think the ministry of Tim Keller in his pastoral and theological ministry will live on for a number of decades beyond his life is through a book that he wrote called The Prodigal God. And in it, he takes a look at the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells us in the gospel accounts. And Keller really observes what's going on here. See, if you're familiar with the prodigal son story, it's one in which there is a father and two sons. And one son completely disses the father and he leaves him. He rejects him altogether. He says, I don't want to be part of whatever's going on in your life. And he leaves and he squanders all of his wealth in wild living He completely disrespects the father, says he wants nothing to do with him. And the second son does just the opposite. The second son stays right next to the father. He is at home with the father, obeying all the rules, practicing all the customs, doing everything that the father asks him to do, all the while growing more and more self-righteous and more and more assumptive that he deserves a better reward from the father than the other son does. You see, as Keller looks at this passage, he observes this. He says, neither son loved the father for himself. They were both using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than in loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means, Keller says, 
that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It is a shocking message, Keller says. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. You see, this is what Paul is getting at here in Galatians chapter 2. Because actually, based on the law and the customary way of being, Peter was actually doing everything right in this situation. It was against the law for him to eat with the Gentiles who were not part of the in-group. So he wasn't supposed to be associated with them. He wasn't supposed to be fellowship and eating with them. Technically, he was doing the right things. Just like the older son in the prodigal son story who stays with the father. But, Paul says, you are missing the point. Because the point is that God is far more interested in the inward transformation of our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us, making us a new creation than he is in whatever customary or ritualistic things that we observe on the outside to look good. This is the mark of a real faith, Paul says, that we prioritize inward transformation over outward ritual. And so one of the questions that I leave you with today is, is your faith, is your relationship with God more based on following the rules or more based on being open to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Paul is not done talking to Peter. He has more things that he'd like to say to him. And he picks that up in verse 15. He says, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we're found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean that Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not, Paul says. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. I think that could be a sermon series in itself. Do we accidentally rebuild the old system of the law that Jesus Christ in his abundant grace has torn down for us? He goes on and he says, For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that then I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with, crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. 
For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Amen, amen, and amen. Friends, this is the word of the Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. We see here in Paul's teaching to Peter, his exhorting, encouraging of Peter, you might call it, a second fundamental passion that he has about what it means to have a real faith. He says real faith means that our security and self-worth is found in Jesus Christ alone. This is what he's saying. It's so easy. It is so easy to place our security and self-worth in other things. In getting people to like us. In achieving the next thing. In following all the rules. Whatever it might be. It is so easy for us to put our security and self-worth in something else, in one of those things. But you know what the truth of that is, Paul says? Is when we do that, it is flat out exhausting. You see, because what happens is we're never truly fulfilled. We never fully experience what we are yearning for at the end of the day. This love and care and deep, profound nature of mattering. We never experience that because we are constantly churning for the next thing. We are constantly trying to get the next promotion, get the next person to like us, get people's approval, get into that college, whatever it may be, follow that next rule, feel better about ourselves, meet our own expectations, whatever it might be. We are constantly churning, climbing this ladder, and then we begin to realize that the ladder never ends. It just goes up and up and up and up and up, and we do this all of the time. We put our security and self-worth in all of these things. But, Paul says, there is another option. And that option's name is Jesus Christ. See, we have the opportunity to put our entire security and self-worth, all of our being, in Him. And when we do that, Paul says, we can stop trying. Stop yearning and cycling through. Stop trying to climb the ladder because we know before anything that we've done, before we've tried to follow the law or do the customary things, Jesus Christ looks at us and says that we are his and that we are truly loved and known by the God of the universe without having to do anything other than accept that. This is the real message of the gospel, Paul says. And what happens when we put our security and self-worth in Jesus Christ alone is that like Paul says in this text, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me.
I grew up in the church, but it wasn't really until I got involved in a ministry by the name of Young Life in my teenage years that I began to really fully understand the grace and the love that Jesus had for me and how that impacted my life. And one year, my sophomore year of high school, my family, we went on a, a trip. We went on a weekend retreat with this Young Life ministry. So it was my brothers and I and my mom, along with a number of other families, and then my, my Young Life leaders, mentors, who had been so instrumental in my faith journey. And we were there one night at the retreat, and the evening session was over, and everybody was getting ready to go back to their bed to sleep for the night. And my Young Life leader, my mentor in that time, he came over and he leaned over my shoulder and he goes, hey, Charlie, do you want to start a dance party? <laughs> Things you need to know about me. Uh, I grew up an incredibly reserved person. For the first 16 years of my life, I was terribly insecure. I was so preoccupied with what other people thought of me. I was so image and self-conscious. And the last thing I would ever want to do in the entire world was make a fool of myself in front of other people by starting a dance party. But you see, in that time of my life, God had gotten a hold of me. And the power of his Holy Spirit had begun a transforming work in my own life. And so, by only the power of the Holy Spirit, I happened to, in that moment, look up at my Young Life leader and say, of course I do. Let's do it. And so the two of us turned on some music, ran up onto the stage, and for what felt like hours, danced ridiculously by ourselves in front of this room full of people who were just mingling about. But you know what happened? Slowly but surely, one by one, parents and kids alike who were at that retreat started to come up on the stage and join us. And pretty soon, there was an entire room of multiple generations goofily dancing on stage, experiencing joy and community in a way that I cannot even describe in that moment. It was one of those tiny glimpses of heaven. You see, what I didn't know about that story was that my mom was in the back corner that entire time watching this whole thing with her jaw on the floor and tears running down her cheek. And at one point, my young life leader went back to check on her. He said, Mrs. Browning, are you okay? And with a big smile, she just leaped on him and gave him a hug and she said, what have you done with Charlie? Charlie does not start dance parties. And my young life leader just laughed and shook his head and he said, ma'am, that had nothing to do with me. That is the work of God in Charlie's life. I think the Holy Spirit is up to something in that kid. You see, it sounds silly, but in some ways, a real authentic faith is having our security and self-worth so founded in Jesus Christ alone 
that we can do things like start dance parties because they bring joy and community to other people. I don't know what that might be in your context, but I wonder what it would look like for you to have such a secure identity and self-worth in Christ alone and not in the other things of this world that you could bring joy and community and grace and love to people without feeling worried about what they might think. Those are the marks of a real, authentic faith. And so I might leave you with this. One other question to sit with this week. How can we as a church, how can this community of people help you in your quest to more firmly root your security and self-worth in Jesus Christ alone? Because we are all on that journey. How can we serve you in that? this week and beyond so that we might all be able to say like Paul himself did it is no longer I who live but Christ in me would you bow your heads and pray with me Lord we are grateful for your grace for the fact that you have come and given yourself for our sake so that we do not need to follow the law to be worthy, but instead we can relish in your grace and that transforms us from the inside out. And so God, may we know that a real authentic faith has everything to do with inward transformation and putting our security and self-worth in you and you alone. God, we only can imagine what this community of faith would look like if that were more and more true of us every day of our lives moving forward. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who is with us this day and forevermore. Amen.